We're continuing to work our way through 1 Corinthians, and we're looking at verses 20 through 26 this morning. 1 Corinthians 12, 20 through 26. And this is the second part of the part we began, the first part last week. We're looking at God's design for the church, the body of Christ, God's design for the church. So let me read verses 20 through 26 for us. Paul says, But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. One of the arguments that supporters of evolutionary theory sometimes use in order to defend that position is the idea that the human body has vestigial organs. What does the word vestigial mean? Well, it's like, it means footprint. It's like a trace of something that was before, a vestige of what was before. A vestigial organ is an organ that our body has that supposedly used to play a role in our less evolved ancestors, but plays no role in our bodies now. It's like a holdover, supposedly, from our evolutionary ancestors. One problem, and there are a number of problems with that idea, but one problem with this argument is that the more and more we grow in our understanding of the human body, the shorter and shorter that list of vestigial organs becomes because we discover, oh, this does play an important role in the functioning of our bodies. One example would be our tailbone. Our tailbone used to be considered by evolutionists as a holdover from our supposedly more monkey-like ancestors, but now it's recognized that our tailbone serves as an important anchor point for many muscles and ligaments. It just shows that we can trust that God's word is true, that he created everything in six days, and everything he created was very good right at the start. He did not use an evolutionary process to create nor did he create any useless organs. Every organ in our bodies has a purpose. But we can carry this kind of faulty thinking into the church. In our pride, there are some members who in our eyes are almost vestigial. It's like they serve no function. It's pointless for them to be there. We could get along well enough without them. But Paul is going to show us that we could not be more wrong about that. God has designed the church. He has composed the body of Christ, and he has not created any useless body parts. The Holy Spirit has placed each believer in the body of Christ just so, with a gift, a ministry, a level of effectiveness that's appropriate to their specific place 
within that spiritual body. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see a few things that we need to be careful to do when it comes to those toward whom we can tend to assume this spirit of pride. We need a corrective on our pride. How do we look at these folks that we tend in our sinful natural selves to look down on? How should we actually be behaving toward such individuals? Well, first, in verses 20 to 21, we're going to see that we need to recognize the necessity, the importance of every body part in the body of Christ, every believer. The word member means body part. Again, that's the imagery that Paul is using throughout this chapter. Last week, we saw Paul address those who felt that they were on the outside looking in when it came to who belonged to the in crowd in the church. And Paul has made it pretty clear throughout this chapter that there is no in crowd in the church. There is no distinction between those who matter and those who don't matter. Everyone matters. And Paul first addressed those who felt like they didn't matter, and he said, no, you do matter. Here, Paul is going to address those who think they matter most. They matter more than other believers. Paul is showing that every believer in the body of Christ is an equally spirit-baptized body part of Christ's body, the church. There's not two bodies of Christ. There's one and only one. Every member matters. Every gift is significant. Every member has been placed just so by God. That's what we saw last week. But now in verse 21, well, let me read verse 20, first of all. He says, but now there are many members, but one body. Not two bodies, one body. In verse 21, Paul now addresses those who think that they are part of the in crowd, those who think they're superior to other believers, those who look down their nose upon others. He represents them by the eye and the head, looking down on the feet and the hand. Verse 21, Paul says, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The kind of division that seems to pop up so frequently in churches is nowhere to be found in the proper, natural functioning of our physical bodies. Right? We instinctively lament the loss of the function of one of our body parts. If my arm gets infected or damaged, the rest of my body does everything it can to save that limb because I know that I will be severely hampered if I lose this body part. The whole body understands the necessity of just one body part. And that kind of concern for each individual body part ought to be present in the body of Christ, the church. And I'm very thankful that this is the case in this church. By and large, I believe that this congregation, you all, excel in having concern for one another. There are many numerous and marvelous examples of that, even recently. Your heart of generosity toward those in need, it really blows our socks off. I know I personally have been the undeserving recipient of your concern and your help many times, and I know that a lot of others can say the same thing about all of you. 
So I praise God for doing that marvelous work in this congregation. But we must not rest on our laurels, right? Look at what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The church at Thessalonica was such a congregation, a loving congregation. And yet look, what, look at what Paul said to them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 to 10. He says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. He didn't say, you can take a break now. No, he said, keep going and go even harder than what you've gone before. We are always to be pressing on in our love for one another. Just as your physical head and your physical eye are constantly at work to protect your hands and your feet because the hands and the feet are so needed, so we as the body of Christ should be constantly looking out for one another because we recognize that we need one another in order to do what Christ has called us to do in fulfilling the Great Commission. So that's the first thing. We need to recognize the necessity, the importance the essential nature of every single believer in the body of Christ. Secondly, in verses 20 to 22 to 24, we're going to see that we need to honor those who are without honor. We need to honor those who naturally don't accumulate a lot of honors in their ministry, in the exercise of their gifting. Paul here seeks to put the proud in their place. There are sometimes individual believers who, because of the nature of their spiritual gift, they have drawn the wrong conclusion that they don't need other believers. They think they are self-sufficient, that their gift means that they can be lone rangers, that they'd get more done in the church if it wasn't for others slowing them down, hampering them, hindering them. Listen to what Paul says to them in verse 22. He's correcting their spiritual ignorance about this. He says, On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. If you look down on another believer because their gift does not appear to be as prominent as yours or because they do not seem to be as capable as you or not as effective as you, do not think that you do not need them. They are absolutely critical to the body of Christ. Paul calls these members, quote-unquote, weaker. We think that because they're weaker, we don't need them. Paul is saying that's wrong. Most of us, when healthy, go through life without giving a thought to our internal organs, right? I don't spend all day worrying about the condition of my heart because everything's going well. Our internal organs are weak. They're unable to accomplish much of any significance. Externally speaking, they can't swing a hammer. They can't sing a song. My heart can't preach a sermon. But when my heart begins to malfunction, I realize very quickly how desperately I need that member 
of my body. And it's the same in the body of Christ. God has gifted some individuals in such a way that they are like those weak internal organs. They're hidden away, they're out of sight, they're not very prominent, they don't, not much seems to be accomplished to our eyes, and yet they are the beating heart of a church. I think of our nursery workers, that team of people who rotate week by week, month by month, who watch our young ones. They are hidden downstairs in the bowels of the church. They are the weak internal organs, if you will. They're chasing after screaming toddlers. They're changing dirty diapers. They're loving the upcoming generation of the church. And it would be easy for someone like me, standing up here, preaching God's word to you week after week, to pridefully think that I don't need those hidden members of the church serving as they are. But if those exercising their gift of service in the nursery stopped exercising that gift, I would discover very quickly just how crucial they are to the life of the church. My two young sons, screamers, would be unleashed onto this congregation and my preaching would be completely nullified because nobody would hear a word that I had to say. We need those folks. And we need other folks who we don't notice. They're behind the scenes. They're in the background. They are the heartbeat of the church. Are you willing to take on that role for the good of the church? When those with more prominent gifts think that they are superior to someone who lacks that kind of prominence, their pride indicates that they are subscribing to the world's wisdom, not God's wisdom. Because the world looks upon prominence. The, the world elevates that which is showy, that which seems to get a lot done and to get it done fast. But that's not what God values. Turn back with me to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 27. What has God done? Chapter 1, verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen who? The weak. Same word. The weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Next, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to see this word or the, the same root of this word show up again. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 7. This is Paul's testimony of what the Lord was doing in his life. He says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in what? Weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, 
with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Those who we might view as weak, they are probably the strong ones, not rather than you. Those who seem to be weaker are actually better positioned to display the glory of God than those who appear to be stronger. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul goes on in verses 23 to 24 to say this, And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. Here, Paul describes an aspect of God's design for the church, which is how believers with more noticeable gifts are to behave toward believers with not-so-noticeable gifts. He calls them those who are deemed less honorable. Who are these less honorable ones? Well, one Greek lexicon defines this word, less honorable, as such in this context. Quote, being considered relatively unimportant, insignificant. This word is used of things that do not elicit special admiration or attention. Things that do not elicit special admiration or attention. Who are these less honorable ones? They are people in the church who are overlooked, who don't seem very significant. They're not the object of admiration for many people. You don't hear their names being spoken from many people's lips. Paul is telling us in verses 23 to 24 that God desires for his church to function in such a way that the body parts of the body of Christ, believers in the church, are to bestow more abundant honor on those who are less honorable those who are unnoticed. We do this with our physical bodies. We have body parts that are not suitable for public display, and so we cover them. And yet we cover them in ways that make them presentable. I notice none of you came in here wearing a burlap sack. You all put at least a modicum of thought and energy into what you would cover your le lesser presentable parts with, didn't you? Some had more thought than others, but you did that. That's just a joke. I don't have anybody in mind. <laughs> you all look better than I do, that's for sure. It should be that way in the body of Christ. Again, just to use nursery as an example, our nursery is not on display. It's hidden. It's not an exhibit like a zoo. We don't have a portion of the sanctuary here um, with a wall of soundproof glass so that we can all see what's going on down there. We don't have that. By its nature, that ministry is covered and it's out of sight. And yet, we should take care to give honor to those individuals serving in that capacity each month. We should be on the lookout for others who serve in ways like that, who have gifts and ministries that go unnoticed 
and we should endeavor to cover them with honor. The church is supposed to be not like the world, countercultural to the world. There are those in our church who have gifts and ministries that the world would not take any notice of, would not acknowledge, would not point out or honor. But we in the church should be taking notice of those things. We should be acknowledging those individuals. We should be honoring them. And the honor that Paul is talking about here is not an ego-swelling honor. He's not talking about us running around, flattering one another, giving one another puffed-up heads. What he's calling us to do in giving honor to the quote-unquote less honorable is to speak the truth in love to those people. He's calling on us to let those overlooked individuals know how important their service to Christ and his church is, how needed their prayers are, how, inf- how essential their help is. And Paul is calling us to remind one another about that, that God delights to work through the less honorable, the quote-unquote weaker servants. Those who are out front, whose gifts and ministries are more pronounced, they often don't really need that kind of determined special care and attention. That's what Paul says here. Verse 24, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. It's not that they don't need encouragement too, it's that they're not lacking in encouragement. By the nature of their gift and ministry, honor and encouragement tend to naturally flow toward those individuals already. They're not lacking in that kind of encouragement. They're not starving for attention. You don't really need to put a lot of effort into finding me or taking notice of what hopefully the Lord is accomplishing through the gift and the ministry he's entrusted to me. You don't have to look far to find me because I'm right here. You can see what's going on. Someone encourages me pretty much every Sunday, and I am thankful for that, and I need that. But there are those among us who labor week after week, month after month, and it may be years since they last received a word of encouragement or a note thanking God for what God is accomplishing through them. And they're wondering, is God doing anything through what I'm doing? Is my service being used for the glory of God? I just don't know anymore. Paul is showing us that the body of Christ is supposed to be a place where every body part, every believer is receiving encouragement and appreciation for their service to Christ and his church. When was the last time you or I encourage someone who is often overlooked? When was the last time we sent them a card expressing our thanks to God for how he's using them? We need to do more of that. And I know many of you already do, but we, we must excel still more. I want to read to you another passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Paul says much the same thing, but just in different words. And he gives a theological foundation behind this exhortation. 
1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as also you are doing. So we are to honor those who are without honor. Lastly, in the second half of verse 24, going on into verse 26, we are to show the same concern for one another that we show for ourselves and for others. We are to show the same concern for one another, irrespective of what their gifts or their ministry are. Paul gives us the reason why God has designed the body of Christ in this way. Look at the second half of verse 24 on into verse 25. He says, But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Notice that it's ultimately God who is desiring to give honor to the believer who may be lacking that honor. You see what it says there? The second half of verse 24, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. This is God's desire. And we, you and I, can be a conduit through which God will bless others among us. And what a privilege that is to be the instrument through which God would bless somebody else. God desires unity in the body of Christ not division. Taking special notice of those who are quote-unquote weaker or less honorable or less presentable, taking notice of them serves to heal division and promote unity in the body of Christ. And this is something, as we've seen already, that the Corinthian congregation was failing to do. Remember back in chapter 11, how they were behaving toward one another, toward those who they seemed to think were less important. Look at chapter 11, verse 17. Paul, he's giving instruction about celebrating the Lord's Supper. He says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. And what does he instruct them to do? Verse 33, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Some in this Corinthian congregation were looking down their noses at others in the church. And Paul, here in chapter 12, is calling these disobedient believers to do the exact opposite to honor the ones that they have been looking down on. 
It's not, he's not just saying stop looking down on them. He's saying honor them. Put more abundant honor upon them. You see, there's to be no partiality in the church. No partiality of any kind in the church. God desires that the members have the same care for one another. Turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And let me read verses 1 through 13 to you. As you're turning there, what Paul said back in verse, what was it, 25, that the members may have the same care for one another. We are to show the same level of concern for every member of the body of Christ. So the pastor's needs should not be looked out for and worried about more than the needs of any other believer in the body of Christ. The member of the church whose gift and ministry is hidden away, weaker, less honorable, we should not show less concern for them than any other member of the body of Christ. And James states this quite plainly for us. James chapter 2 starting in verse 1. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We are to be just as concerned about one member of the body of Christ as the other. Is not my eye constantly on the lookout for potential injuries coming to any other part of my body? It ought to be that way in the church. We should look out for one another. Back in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, Paul says, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. This is true of our physical bodies. 
And it ought to be true of this spiritual body, the church of Jesus Christ. If I cut my finger, my whole body works to minister healing to that finger, right? My feet and my legs, they'll walk me on over to the medicine cabinet. I, in futility, I rummage around trying to find the band-aids. I can't find it, so my mouth calls out to my wife, where are the band-aids? And my ears listen intently to her instructions, and she tells me, and my eyes scan the plethora of drugs and what have you in that cabinet, and I find it, and my other hand works to put the band-aid on the finger. That's what we are to be as the body of Christ. If one member is hurting, we all work together to try to remedy that problem. And again, I think this congregation does very well at that. But let us excel still more. Or if someone compliments my hair, I've never gotten that kind of compliment, but if someone compliments my hair, the other parts of my body don't cry out, hey, what about me? No, my whole body is honored that you have thought so well of my hair. And that's how it's to be in the body of Christ. When one of us is encouraged, when one of us is honored, all of us should rejoice because it is the body of Christ as a whole that is being encouraged and honored and Jesus Christ is being praised. And it doesn't matter if that's happening to me or someone else, I should rejoice in that. You don't have to turn there, but Romans 12 and verse 15 says much the same thing. Paul there says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's something that you cannot do if you're being selfish. You cannot, if you are selfish, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It takes a determined effort and a denial of yourself to willingly enter into someone else's rejoicing or into someone else's weeping. If you are in a bad mood and someone else has something great happen to them and you hear about it, what is typically your response? How often do we grumble at the fact that something good happened to that person, but it didn't happen to me? You know, we're having a terrible day, and someone tells us, hey, look, look at what happened to that person. What a great thing. And it's like they're pouring salt into the wound of my heart and my cruddy day. We become jealous and resentful toward that rejoicing person. But such an attitude is more like a cancer in the body of Christ rather than the proper functioning of a body part, a healthy body part within the body of Christ. Instead of grumbling, we should rejoice with that person despite what's going on in our lives. We need to recognize that what is good for them is good for us because we are members of one another. We are part of the same body of Christ. And if they are benefited, I know that Christ is benefited, and that should be enough for me. I should rejoice in that. Whether or not the cause for rejoicing has happened directly to me or not, doesn't matter. Not only do we often need to deny ourselves in order to rejoice with someone who is rejoicing, but we also often need to deny ourselves in order to weep with someone who is weeping. We don't like to be sad. We like to be happy. And when someone is weeping, sometimes we seek to withdraw from that person 
so that they don't drag us down, so they don't drag my mood into the dirt right along with them. And we cut ourselves off from them. But if my finger hurts, my whole body hurts. My whole body feels the pain, and my whole body keeps feeling the pain and works to remedy the problem until that pain is gone. And so it should be with the body of Christ. We must not abandon one another in times of sadness. We have to be willing to enter into someone's suffering and stay there with them until they come out on the other side. That's what it looks like to bear one another's burdens. And is that not what Christ did for us? So this is how the body of Christ has been designed by God to function. And we each one of us need to examine ourselves, myself included, and ask ourselves, am I behaving as a member, a body part in the body of Christ? Am I behaving as such a one ought to behave? Or am I more like a cancer, backbiting and devouring the body? If I'm not behaving as I ought to behave, I need to confess that sin to God. I need to ask his forgiveness, and I need to ask him to change me. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it may be that you're here this morning and you are not yet a part of the body of Christ. You have not yet come to the place where you can sincerely confess by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is Lord and you're still dead in your sins and you're still a stranger to the gospel. Well, you need to know that Jesus invites you to become a part of his people. Jesus who is God the Son, became a man, and he lived the perfect life that you were unwilling and unable to live. And he went to the cross where he died in the place of sinners like you and me, and he satisfied the just wrath of God that was due our sins. And he rose from the dead, never to die again, showing that what he accomplished on the cross was enough to save forever any and all who would draw near to God through faith in him. And Jesus invites you to come to him. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Listen to Jesus' invitation to any and all. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you weary of living for yourself? Are you weary of all the guilt and shame that your own sin has brought upon you? Then come to Jesus by turning from your sin and putting your trust in him alone to be your Savior and your Lord. He himself has invited you. He will not turn you away if you come to him. Let's pray.